for me, it's personal because I actually grew up in rural Massachusetts as the oldest of six kids. And one of my youngest sisters, when she was in preschool, had a serious brain injury. Um, and at that time, there was no 911. You couldn't actually dial 911 um, and get anyone to come. And the closest EMS ambulance was in the next town over at the hospital. Um, and so my parents made the decision to put her in the car by themselves and drive to that hospital to get to care and carried her in unconscious. And the team there saw her and recognized that she was really young and really sick and that they didn't have the ability to care for her at that moment. So they actually directed my parents to drive to the city, which was two hours away, handed her back to them in the car, and they drove two hours as she's seizing during the, in the car ride. When they got to that hospital, they recognized she did have the eye injury, but she also had a significant brain injury and they were not ready to care for that. And so they transferred her to a separate hospital to care for her head injury. And all of that time, she wasn't getting the care that she would have gotten had she been at that hospital to start. This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. It could be on my shift. That powerful personal story was shared by Dr. Sage Myers, a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That story took place a long time ago, but it illustrates well the changes that needed to occur in our emergency medical services. And it demonstrates why all emergency departments need to be ready and equipped to care for children. Right, Sarah. That's the thing about kids. They're small and parents can just pick them up and throw them into their station wagon and go to the closest emergency department. They don't know if that department specializes in children, quote unquote, just that it's a hospital. Yeah, and I saw this fairly recently when a meth-intoxicated six-month-old was brought into the VAED, the VA, Julia. (laughs) And if you have ever worked at the VA, I am sure you can picture that scene. Well, I don't work there, but I can just feel the angst. I can picture it. Yeah, and many people have similar stories of feeling underprepared for those little ones that come in critically ill. And that's why this topic is yet another topic that is near and dear to my own heart. I love the work that groups like the Emergency Medical Services for Children's Innovation and Improvement Center, or the EIIC in the U.S., or TREC in Canada, are doing to help every ED be prepared to care for whatever pint-sized emergency comes through their doors. This is why I spoke with two doctors who have truly dedicated their lives to pediatric readiness. Dr. Marianne Gaushi-Hill is the medical director for the L.A. County EMS Agency, professor of clinical emergency medicine and pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and Harbor UCLA, a senior consultant to the EIIC, and a member of the steering committee of the National Pediatric Readiness Project. Basically, she is the queen of pediatric readiness. (laughs) Dr. Kate Remick is a pediatric emergency medicine and EMS physician. She is a professor at Dell School of Medicine at the University of Texas, co-director of the EIAC, and the San Marcos Hayes County EMS medical director. Let's start off and define for everyone listening, what does pediatric readiness mean? What does this mean for us in the emergency department? 
Well, to me, uh, pediatric readiness in the emergency department is that you literally have uh, the infrastructure, the staff, and the training, as well as policies and procedures in place to ensure that you can provide optimal care for any child who comes in 24-7, you know, uh, 365, right? And so part of that, um, we have also utilized uh, guidelines that were prepared and supported by the major organizations that uh, care for children in the United States in emergency settings, and that would be the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Emergency Nurses Association. So those in conjunction with the EMS for Children federal program have helped sponsor uh, this initiative, which has created guidelines. And it's really compliance with these guidelines that we look at when we actually measure pediatric readiness. It's really the everyday ability to provide high-quality care for children. And it's not just one item. It's not just about having the equipment or supplies in place. Um, It's not about just having one person who is championing the cause, but it's really about the system of care and making sure that as a system, uh, we're prepared for any child who comes through our doors. So preparing a system, infrastructure, training, people, equipment, all of those things is costly and it's time consuming. Why would a emergency department want to invest in this process? First of all, it's not costly. It's just a matter of commitment. Many people conflate, you know, getting ready to care for children as costly when all it does is take a commitment to move forward. We do know that uh, the presence of a pediatric emergency care coordinator, ideally a physician and a nurse within the department, so somebody assigned that role, does a great deal in terms, we know it improves uh, pediatric readiness and then By improving pediatric readiness, we know that improves quality of care and ultimate outcomes for children. So really, the initial commitment, uh, just to make that commitment, we will as a department explore and try to improve our pediatric readiness is really the, the first stop, right? The first place you need to go as an emergency department or a system. And then utilizing the published guidelines is kind of a nice framework. Uh, If you can be 100% compliant with those guidelines, and it's not rocket science here, I think this is pretty straightforward policies, procedures, education, and uh, administrative staffing with a pediatric emergency care coordinator. If indeed you do that, uh, then that's a great first step. And then the question is just reevaluating, seeing how you're doing, and continuing uh, to improve quality through an appropriate quality performance, right, and performance evaluation or performance um, improvement program. Yeah, that's a really good point that pediatric readiness is not just you passed, you made all the checkboxes complete, but that you continue to monitor and make sure that it's improving. Kate, when you speak with health systems that are talking about improving their pediatric readiness, what are some of the motivators that you give them? Well, you know, emergency departments are are really the safety net of healthcare in this country. And we know that 30 million children seek emergency care every year. 
And over 80% of those are 24 million children are seeking that care in community emergency departments. Um, emergency departments that may be in urban areas, maybe in rural areas, but at the same point really serve as the pillar for their communities. And families don't know the difference from one emergency department to another. And it's really up to us to um, make sure that we have the resources in place to provide the care that every child deserves. I believe many emergency departments don't think that uh, they really care for the great majority of children, but the statistics are are out there. We know that this is where children are being seen. This is where they're um, relying on physicians and nurses to take care of them. So it's it's really, I think, up to us to make sure that we're ready for those kids, even though they only represent 20% of uh, the total population that's uh, coming to those particular EDs. Yeah, so the average ED sees about less than 13 kids a day, and in rural and remote areas, it maybe is less, uh, you know, like five. But the issue is just being ready because you, you never know what you're going to get. You know, I've seen some of my sickest kids in a community ED when I worked, you know, a kid with a really bad tet spell who was going to require surgery um, to get it fixed. Uh, and that was really the only way. So we had to affect secondary transfer. And what we do know is that really the key components is get is get ready you know, get baseline readiness through education, staffing, equipment, policies. And if you do that, you're great. But there's one extra step. And that one extra step is really smoothing over the interfacility transfer process because not every hospital has PICUs. It's a very small percentage. I think it's around 12% that we looked at um, have PICUs. And so, therefore, for any critically ill or injured child, it's going to require secondary transport. So instead of making it up as you go, so to speak, right, is that if you can get that smoothed out, you know, reach out to your regional partners. They're more than happy to work with a, a small emergency department or even a even a medium emergency department, medium sized emergency department that doesn't have those resources. You just have to be uh, ready to affect these kind of transfers. So plan it ahead of time. Work with the administration and make sure you know what process is in place to rapidly transfer patients safely. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Planning ahead is key. When you speak with community hospitals that are wanting to initiate this process, you I'm sure you refer them to the guideline that's the key component. Walk us through the guideline components that what would they need to do to get started? You know, the pediatric guidelines include seven really key components or domains of focus. I think the first step is really identifying a champion, having a pediatric emergency care coordinator. And ideally, um, it should be both a nurse and a physician. So really both working collaboratively because we know that the roles and responsibilities that nurses play in the emergency department is uh, different from that which a physician plays. And it's really important that we take on that multidisciplinary team approach. The second piece is really beginning to look at the quality of care that we're providing currently. Um, and that's really the quality improvement process. So what does care look like when a child enters the emergency department? Is it patient-centered? What's their experience? Are they experiencing delays? Are they having a full set of vital signs taken? Are they uh, receiving the interventions that they need that are related to improved outcomes? 
So really having that whole quality improvement process in place, and you can start small with that. I think the second um, piece after that is really beginning to look at the competencies. Are we maintaining uh, nurse and physician competencies to take care of children? And that certainly includes how we communicate with families and children, but also just maintaining the knowledge and skill set. After that, we're really looking at safety measures and family-centered care, how we're making sure that children are uh, not experiencing the risks associated sometimes with weight-based dosing or developmental delays and communication. The next is really making sure we have the equipment, supplies, and medications to be able to uh, take care of children. And then having policies, procedures, and protocols that really help to create standardization of care um, across all providers and all shifts. Um, and then the last is support services, which really refers to um, radiation services, laboratory capabilities. Um, and those are really dependent on the resources that exist within that department. I like that. And it kind of goes back to what Marianne was saying earlier, that this requires a hospital commitment, a commitment from the system to say like, hey, we want to prioritize the children in our community and we want to give the emergency department itself the resources that they need to be able to do that well. How do you um, suggest that, like, if there's an emergency department physician in the ED that's like, I want to take care of kids well, maybe I should have gone into PEM, this would have been my calling, but here I am and I want to do it well where I'm at. How do you, how do they engage the help of the hospital system themselves to be able to make this work? Well, we do have uh, some talking points around that. First of all, if they're that motivated, they should be the pediatric emergency care coordinator. You don't have to be PEM uh, to be a pediatric emergency care coordinator. In fact, you know, there's not enough of them around the country. You know, I'm trained uh, originally in emergency medicine and then did a pediatric emergency fellowship. So I really understanding the training, the backdrop for emergency physicians who are practicing out there. And I say, you know, the first uh, step is to be motivated enough to seek additional resources uh, by administration. The other thing is uh, for many healthcare corporate entities, as an example, if you're part of a, a system of care, so to speak, or a healthcare corporate system, you should leverage the strengths that you have within that system to be able to benefit all of the hospitals. So although, you know, you could each hospital, it would be ideal to have a pediatric emergency care coordinator, physician, and nurse, you could potentially have a regional one that works with each hospital to, as an example, one hospital may have a whole set of policies, another hospital may have all the equipment. Well, there's ways to work together um, within a healthcare system uh, to ensure that everybody, all boats are lifted, as it were, in order to improve uh, readiness. In addition, I think there's a lot of resources out there, certainly going to the EIIC or just putting in pediatricreadiness.org. That takes you to the EIIC toolkit for pediatric readiness, and there's a whole bunch of sample policies and things there that um, really help guide you. And I'd say uh, front and center, you should download the guidelines. Uh, also, there's uh, that can be done off that site. There's also a checklist. You can go through and check all the stuff. Do I have everything? And uh, certainly, as we go forward uh, to every year participate in the National Pediatric Readiness Assessment through the portal, 
at pedsready.org so you can check your own assessment. And it's uh, we just finished an assessment, so it's not uh, up and running yet, but it will be soon. And, and that's an opportunity for ongoing engagement by any emergency department to really check their own preparedness literally on a yearly basis. Yeah, I love that assessment because it's a concrete data point that you can keep tracking. I fill it out for our hospital and have encouraged many of my regional partners to fill that out as well because it really gives you some concrete data points to look at yourself and reflect and see, are we improving? You know, if you're part of a network system, oftentimes those networks have perhaps a children's hospital that's included within their uh, within their network. And certainly, you know, using that regionalized approach where you're able to uh, connect with pediatric emergency care coordinators or champions at that children's hospital can be helpful. But when it comes to really communicating back to leadership, what we find is that on average, the total number of children seen across the network at the other hospitals is almost equivalent to that which we find oftentimes within the children's hospital. And being able to make that argument to say 60,000 children might be seen at the children's hospital, but the same number, 60,000, are being seen across the rest of the network. And so as a network, we have the responsibility to make sure that we're all ready. The last thing that I wanted to add, too, is that um, we now know that pediatric readiness is absolutely related to outcomes. And critical outcomes like mortality. And, you know, when children come to the emergency department who are critically ill or injured, generally speaking, mortality rates are pretty low. But even so, we found recently um, a number of papers have come out that have demonstrated that pediatric readiness is actually associated with decreased mortality. So it actually becomes an issue of not just um, safety and being able to meet the needs of these children, but also becoming an issue of risk management and how we can really ensure that Um, Every family who comes in gets the highest quality care. Um, We know from a study that came out of Pittsburgh by Stephanie Ames and Jeremy Kahn and Mary Ann, as well as several other colleagues, that when critically ill children present to an emergency department that has a high level of readiness, there's as much as a fourfold decrease in mortality. And additionally, in a recent study that was published by uh, Craig Newgard and colleagues, for injured children, among injured children who are seen in trauma centers around the country, that there's as much as a twofold decrease in mortality if those trauma centers maintain a high level of readiness. So we're really starting to see an increasing awareness around the importance of this. And it's really important to be able to communicate that to not only your ED leadership, but also your hospital network leadership. Yeah, I love those papers, and uh, it's definitely important data points for me, and I think helpful for getting that commitment. Now, okay, if we're not going to use the costly word, (laughs) um, it does require that financial commitment from the hospital to make these things happen, to do, in my opinion, what is right. Is there funding that's available that people can access, or how do hospitals make that financial commitment? To me, it's operational cost. You know, it's really your your day-to-day cost of, of doing business. You have to have all of the equipment and uh, supplies. And we know that costs less than 18 cents a visit and not even that, you know. So we know it's, it's very low cost to the hospital, so having the appropriate equipment and supplies now, training can be costly, as you know, because you, um, you know, you take people off their standard job and you do it. But again, 
That is part of the operational costs, and in many systems, to be a receiving center, you have to meet certain requirements. So to me, that's also operational cost. And then the other issue has to do with the pediatric emergency care coordinator. Uh, You know, depending on the size, for a large hospital that has a large volume of children, that might be a full-time job. But for others, and the large, large majority of emergency departments, it's a shared role. They either work clinically and do this. They are a clinical nurse educator. They are a charge nurse. There is a nurse manager. Uh, They do quality work. So I think it's a shared role. I think the key thing uh, with it is just assigning someone the task. And, And from a physician side, it could be the EMS director, base hospital director. It could be, you know, the quality improvement uh, doctors in charge of, of quality uh, for that group. Uh, it could be an assistant medical director or, or the medical director themselves. So we've seen any type of, uh, you know, potential scenarios here. But the bottom line is just making the commitment to assign someone the role uh, because honestly, if somebody's assigned the role, then they take it on, right? They make sure the policies are updated and in place. They seek out other information that they need, and they start evaluating what's happening in the ED uh, through quality measures, case reviews, et cetera, and can make those changes that are necessary. If it's not assigned, what we've seen is that it's not on my shift, it's, you know? I mean, I, I get it, right? Because I walk in and everybody walks into emergency department hopes their shift is a good one, right? But I think if you can say it could be, it could be on my shift, so I'll make sure that everything is in place. You know, we've seen a few uh, emergency departments that have worked closely with other uh, hospitals regionally to share um, equipment costs, and that can be really effective and sometimes even across, uh, you know, a hospital network. We've also seen some sharing of equipment costs with EMS agencies where there's shared programs that are developed for that. But generally speaking, the equipment costs are quite low. And in our initial estimations, these are less than $1,000 for a single hospital. So we're really, and, and oftentimes much less than that. And so we're, we're really talking about a minimal uh, cost to implement this. And similar to what Marianne just said, I mean, it's really about leveraging the people and the infrastructure that already exists within the institution. This is what we do every day for every other patient population. Um, we know how to do quality improvement. We know how to keep things safe. We know how to ensure uh, equipment supplies are readily available. We just need to make sure that the pediatric voice is heard within all of that. I like that using people that are already focused on those topics and pointing them in that direction. Of course, when you point them towards that, something else, you know, loses out in their time as well. So it's a balancing act with all of this, but it definitely is the right thing to do and uh, could be on your shift. (laughs) Could be you for sure. What about on the individual level? If an individual doesn't get the support from their system but wants to be themselves more pediatric ready, so it is on their shift that they're ready, what would you recommend for them? 
Well, you know, I think there's a lot of simple first steps and then there's some, you know, larger scale ones. But, you know, I think the first piece is looking around in your emergency department, seeing what you have, what happens if, you know, those what if scenarios, what if a child comes in and respiratory failure, what if um, a child comes in seizing, um, how do we begin to look and identify, um, you know, what components we have? You know, I think on a system level, uh, someone who's really wants to step up and serve as that champion, well, we have a checklist available. So really to help standardize and formalize that, um, the checklist can be easily downloaded from the EMS for Children Innovation and Improvement Center website. And from that website or pediatricreadiness.org, you can pull out that checklist, walk around your emergency department, see what you have, see what you don't have. Uh, talk to other staff, make sure you're communicating with the nurse and physician side to really make sure there's good collaboration. You know, I think uh, on a larger scale, there are a number of national quality improvement collaboratives that have now been made available to support individuals that really want to serve in that role. Um, One that's currently ongoing is the uh, Pediatric Emergency Care Coordinator Workforce Development Collaborative that's being hosted by the EMS for Children Innovation and Improvement Center. And it's, you know, it's free and it's open to everyone. It's open to physicians and nurses alike. Um, And it's really an opportunity to um, begin to understand what are the steps to be most effective as a pediatric emergency care coordinator? How can I become a champion? What does it really take? What is this all about? And it's also a great opportunity for networking. I think we're finding more and more that there are also hospital networks that are really identifying a pediatric emergency care coordinator within every facility. And just being able to work collaboratively across your region um, is immensely helpful to to being able to implement these changes. I'm going to talk about how an individual can improve their own readiness, okay? And this is a little bit of a different (laughs) focus, right? So as an emergency physician, you come on your shift, all right? So every shift, I recommend that you do cognitive practice and possibly a a little bit of uh, a bit of a treasure hunt. So uh, what am I saying, right? So you got a a two-year-old who comes in with otitis media. You know, ear hurts, you look at it, it's red, it's bulging, and you prescribe the amoxicillin, Okay. So you go back, you back, you go back to the doc box, and you say, "What if that two-year-old was in status epilepticus? What would I do? What if that child was in cardiac arrest? What if that child had aspirated a Super Bowl, and I had to get that out of her airway? Where would I find that equipment in my ED?" So some people call it deliberate practice. I call it cognitive practice. But if you do that on different age children, every single shift, just once a shift, you'll start to see, I don't know where this equipment is, or I'm not sure where it is. I count on respiratory therapy to bring it, but what if they don't and you need it now? So I think it's really interesting if if my colleagues, my emergency medicine colleagues, if they did cognitive practice at least once a shift and thought about these things and how they would rapidly do what they need to do to resuscitate a child who's critically ill or injured, I think we go a long way. There are other resources, and Kate's outlined them to make your department more ready. 
There are many educational programs in pediatric emergency care out there that um, you can join and, uh, you know, practice skills or get the knowledge that you need on a yearly basis. So I think a commitment for cognitive practice and then ongoing continuing education uh, is, is really critical because for any one physician working in the emergency department, you're just not going to see that many sick children. And so you want to empower yourself with the knowledge and skills to be able to do so. And the only way to do it, if, if you make some commitment to either cognitive practice or ongoing continuing education. I think also just taking that one step further is taking, um, you know, the individual learning to a shared learning model as well across the department of really beginning to pull together teams. And it doesn't necessarily have to be high fidelity simulations or codes that you're running, but even just low fidelity, uh, uh, you know, mock situations where you're walking through the motions of identifying the, you know, the supplies and who's taking what steps and really walking through um, the management of a, a critically ill or injured child. I like empowerment. What can you have in your ED to help you do a better job? And one is, you know, pre-calculated meds. I mean, you can use absolutely the length-based resuscitation tape is great because, you know, read to head, you, 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 you get it and you know what equipment size. Again, the cognitive practice will help, but having some tools available for all of for you and your colleagues so that it's easy, you know, you don't have to overthink it. Uh, and I think that's great. And if you can get emergency pharmacists, I highly recommend them having spent my almost my whole career without one. And now we have it and they, uh, they uh, rock my world when it comes to <laughs> helping out. <laughs> They are a true gift. I 100% agree with you. <laughs> Anything else, guys, that you think we should know about pediatric readiness? I think um, what's important for folks to know is it doesn't stop with the emergency department. You know, we are so excited to see this uh, growing uh, across the entire emergency care continuum. A couple of years ago, the pre-hospital pediatric readiness uh, project launched in 2019 uh, and there's a similar effort underway to really help support EMS agencies and looking forward to the continued collaboration that happens between, you know, the pre-hospital and hospital domains. And I think the other piece that we're really beginning to see is uh, where pediatric readiness starts to fit into inpatient settings and also in clinics um, as we continue to grow this work. Because, you know, for an individual patient entering our emergency care system, it's every single chain or in that link um, or link in that chain. <laughs> every ED can be pediatric ready, you know. Uh, not every hospital can have a picky or not every hospital will have other resources, but every emergency department in the United States uh, can be pediatric ready. And it, it really starts with us, right? It starts with all of us. So it takes one person to say, we need to do this, and that's that thought leader that gets it done. So all I can say is everyone can do it and let it start with you. Pulse check. 
Nearly 70% of children presenting to emergency departments are cared for in EDs that see fewer than 15 pediatric patients a day. Pediatric Ready is when your ED has the appropriate resources, such as medications, equipment, policies, and education, and capable staff to provide effective emergency care for children. This readiness is tied to improved mortality. Partner with your hospital to create a plan. Find a pediatric nurse and physician champion to make it happen. Personal pediatric readiness can happen with deliberate practice and attending conferences that keep you up to date. It could happen on your shift. I hope this inspires you to ask yourself, do I have a 3-0 cuffed ET tube? What would I do if my nurse couldn't get an IV in an infant? Am I ready for a precipitous delivery on my doorstep? What if my own kids ended up here? Would I be okay with that? If the answer is, I don't know, or worse, no, I highly recommend you visit peasready.org. There you can survey your own shop's peds readiness and find resources to improve your peds ready score. There are all kinds of resources on the site, including checklists, articles, and policies that you can adopt for your own institution. And I love listening to those two physicians talk. Their passion for peds readiness just oozes through the mic. You know, I have to tell you, I was fangirling a little during this interview because Dr. Marianne Gaushi Hill is like the big kahuna in <laughs> peds readiness. And, you know, I look at her and I think she is someone who will be able to look back on her life and say, you know what? My life's works changed the face of emergency medicine and countless children have benefited from my work. Just to be able to say that, I don't know, just just wow. And we are still preparing for our podcast series on women in emergency medicine. We're compiling stories that illustrate what it's like to be a woman in emergency medicine. We would be honored if you would call our storyline to record your own story. Call 951-251-4804 and leave us a message or contact us on social media at Impulse Podcast. Another way to show your support for Impulse Podcast is to spread the word to your colleagues. And thanks, as always, to our department for being ready to care for any pint-sized emergency. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for being Julia and Sarah ready. <laughs> See y'all next time. <laughs>